Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, everybody. We've got a fun show today. Our guest is J.D. Gardner, CIO and founder of Aptus Capital Advisors, which provides risk-managed strategies designed to help clients stay invested through the full market cycle. Today's episode has an overarching theme that can be summarized by a quote from J.D. himself. A strategy's return is much less important than an investor's return while exposed to that strategy. J.D. explains how they provide solutions to help bridge the behavioral gap and use options providing investors with income and downside protection so investors don't capitulate at the exactly wrong time. J.D. also spent some time discussing the OCIO part of the business and lessons working with advisors in that capacity. Now, normally I ask you to subscribe and review on the show on Apple and Spotify, but go give another show some love today. Give them a review and spread the love. This episode is brought to you by 10 East. Longtime listeners know I've invested in private markets quite a bit myself, but with access to these markets broadening, it can be hard to know where to find vetted high-quality offerings. That's where 10 East comes in. 10 East is a platform where qualified investors can co-invest on a deal-by-deal basis across private equity, private credit, real estate, venture, and other one-off opportunities typically unavailable through traditional channels. They're founded and led by Michael LaFell, who spent his early career building Davidson Kempner and who invests material personal capital in every offering they bring to the platform, aligning interests with 10 East members who co-invest at their discretion. Join numerous founders, executives, and portfolio managers from leading investment firms who use 10 East to diversify their personal portfolios. Inquire for membership at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Please enjoy this episode with J.D. Gardner. JD, welcome to the show. Glad to be here, Matt. Thanks for having me. Where do we find you today? I'm sitting in lower Alabama, as I like to say, LA. So Fairhope, Alabama. What does that mean for people? Yeah, I tell people from LA and my southern friends like say Louisiana, but you you got a new one, lower, lower Alabama. What does that mean? Yeah, so LA, we're sitting, people may have heard of like Orange Beach, Gulf Shores, Alabama. We're kind of in between Pensacola, Florida and Mobile, Alabama. So it's actually... You know, when, when people first come to visit here, I'm like, hey, it's it's a really nice part of the world. And then they come here and I think the 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 perception of Alabama is always not always the best until they come down here and they're like, hey, this is a pretty nice area. So, Well, cool. Well, look, you guys have been around for a bit with Aptis. You've kind of splashed big on the scene, got a bunch of ETFs. We'll get into some of your strategies today. Give us a little origin story of the firm. When you guys get started, you're one of these rare mashups cfa slash cmt am i right correct um you got the two sides of the brain working give us a little origin story for you guys yeah so the the try to be not boring on this but i came into the business in the financial crisis so baptism by fire feeling like i was educated at least based on you know the books and the designations and then all of a sudden you realize hey the real world is quite different from what my textbooks say so I came into the wirehouse space, got some great experience, spent some time as a research analyst and actually developed some trading strategies in the future space with actually, a. will get to this in a second, but somebody that connected us early, Meb. But 
I really the the light bulb for us and for the origin of Aptis was, you know, the the ETF structure back in 09 really caught my eye just because of the tax efficiency. And then a lot of the work that I was doing in the derivative side, like some of the some of the actual kind of ground up work we were doing building different systems, I thought, man, this ETF wrapper can do a whole lot more than just track the S&P for five bips. So what if we put some of this stuff inside of an ETF wrapper? Because I think that there's a need for it. And so we started Aptis. And and I do want to give you a shout out here, Meb, because I actually looked before we started. So we started Aptis in 2013. And I had this either dumb or smart idea, depending on your angle. Hey, we're going to launch ETFs from Fair Oak, Alabama. And so I spent about two years searching for anybody in the space that knew something about the space and that was willing to say, hey, I'll chat with you. And uh, John Romero, if you know that name, connected us. I, 2015 is our first email back and forth, Mev, and you were willing to say, yeah, let's chat. So we had a couple of conversations about exemptive relief and all of those different things. Yeah, it sounds like a banger of a conversation. The, uh, that's a, the, all the boring nuts and bolts of ETF business, man. You know, well, it's changed a lot. I mean, when we talk to people today, we've certainly, you know, done some podcasts with, with Wes Gray about how to start an ETF. And, you know, 15 years ago, I mean, it used to cost a million dollars. I think it cost us half a million just to get the exemption or even the permission listeners to, to launch a fund, which is crazy. Now, ETF rule, it's streamlined. It's much simpler as the way it should be, um, which is great because it's also opening up, I think, a lot of use cases that people we've talked about for a long time that you're now starting to see advisors, family offices, even charities, you know, all these types of fringe use cases that were not kind of the, the straight down the middle of the index ETF of 20, 25 years ago. So it's fun because there's a lot of interesting ideas bubbling up and a lot of crazy ones too. Like when we started with, with our strategies to get the tax efficiency, you had to have an index. And that's the biggest thing. You can point to other things that the ETF rule did, but the biggest thing is now you can have an active ETF wrapper that doesn't require an index to get the tax efficiency. And so these crazy ideas and good ideas bubbling up, I think if there's going to be issues with the traditional 60-40 portfolio, an ETF's liquid, transparent, easy to get in and out of. So if you can put some of these different exposures into an ETF wrapper and leverage the tax efficiency, that's really where, like going back to your original kind of the origin of Aptis, like I, th- I think that's the path forward for us and that's kind of the space we're trying to play in. Listeners, kind of what JD is getting to there is that there's a little too much inside baseball this early in the morning, but you used to really, the ETF rule is like a patchwork back in the day. You know, it was an exemption, so some index funds had better tax treatment, but it wasn't overall active funds. It was only some funds that got the exemption at certain years and then other years. So it was just a huge mess. So we had actually had active and passive at various points. And this is always like sends our d- uh, due diligence teams down the rabbit hole. They're like, well, why did this fund used to be indexed and now it's active? But thank goodness they kind of swept clean the floor and fixed it so that everything has similar tax treatment. However, this to me was the, the, the final bell ringing for the death of the mutual fund industry, which, you know, ETFs have been eating their lunch for a long time. We kind of borrow Mark Andreessen phrase. We say ETFs are eating the asset management industry. But finally, they said, oh, actually, all ETFs have better tax treatment 
And yet, so mutual funds have this massive disadvantage, which is why you're seeing all the active conversions now. It's just one after another, hundreds of billions of dollars. They still own the 401k space, so that's, that's the standing bid for mutual funds. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you got this crazy idea, this, as we like to say with entrepreneurs, this just very naive optimism that you're going to start launching funds, compete with the big three who have trillions of assets. There's tens of thousands of funds out there. What year on the timeline? When was the first fund? First fund was 16. So it took us a couple years. Well, you guys have certainly survived. And, you know, one of the big mistakes you see a lot of, not just startups, but particularly in our world, is not giving it a big enough runway, but also not just relying on one fund or strategy, which, as you mentioned, any fund or strategy could be out of favor for not just years, but certainly over a decade. And so it's hard to survive in that sort of environment. But tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of y'all's initial foray, and you can kind of pick which strategy we want to start with and as a good uh, overview of what you guys launched, and then we can kind of dig into all of them. Probably the most interesting thing about what we're doing is is twofold, the, the types of strategies and then how we're actually, you know, growing our distribution. So starting on the distribution front, we learned in 16 and, you know, everybody and their mom was launching models. Like that's, that's the thing. It's more efficient to have models. Let's launch models. And, and I would preface everything I'm about to say with, you know, our, our predominant relationship is a financial advisor working with what we call the lifeblood of financial services. So these are folks that are advising on the wealth of the 500,000 to $5 million family. That's sure. We work with bigger ones. We work with smaller ones, but that is what we call the lifeblood. And so everything that I say is probably in the context of these conversations, like the issues with that, what types of strategies are important? How can you compound those types of families wealth? But we learned in 16 that everybody wants models, but there's a, there's a big need for services around those models. So we've got this whole OCIO side of our business where we really try to come alongside advisors and help them. I hate the word institutionalize, but that's exactly what we try to do is institutionalize a process. So how do you diligence a fund? How do you put together a trade rebalance rationale? All of those performance attribution. So kind of the services side of our business, we spend a ton of time and doing those things. And then on the, the product side, like our thing is really vol as an asset class, vol to mitigate risk, vol to enhance yield. And so everything that we're building is, you know, there's going to be derivatives. There's going to be things like that wrapped up in a 40s act fund in the ETF wrapper. And that's, that's what we're doing is, you know, we, we want to be pioneers in the space of kind of options based ETFs. Let's hang out here for a second on this kind of OCIO model you're talking about, because I think for particularly for advisors, this is a big value add. Can you talk a little bit more about what you guys actually do? Do you just hand them sort of a playbook and say, look, this is best practices. These are the things you should be doing. Are you kind of sitting down with them with webinars or like like getting, uh, you know, in their office and saying, look, this is how to really think about X, Y, Z. Like what, what are the main levers? Tell, t- just tell us a little more about it. Yeah. So I, I think scale is the most overused word in the financial services space. I think this is when we realized the opportunity in the OCIO space, it was, okay, here's what we're doing for one advisor. And the question was always, well, how do you scale that? And my answer was always, well, if we're building relationships because of these services and we're doing services that they can't and others won't, 
you know, if your average advisor has four or 500 million in assets, you know, my Alabama math, it doesn't take a lot for scale to add up. And so our OCO business has gone crazy. Thankfully, we've got great partners on that side. In terms of what we're doing, this is kind of a blanket statement for the advising advisor industry. But what we've found is, you know, thanks to 2020, we're not like, well, you must be in the Southeast. We get that a lot. Like, well, we actually have very few relationships in the Southeast. We're kind of all over now. And we found that, you know, like Meb, let's say you're the financial advisor in a relationship. We walk into your office and typically, you know, how well can you service 50 families or how well can you serve 100 families? Well, your service is going to get watered down as you if there's only one of you. And so we found that to be true across the board is there's typically one or a handful advisors in the places that we're targeting, which is mainly independent space. And so what they need, there's really not a ton of process around what they're doing. And that's where you can come in with a very kind of low level detail work around how can we build a process and how can we be the team to help you operate that process versus, you know, the groups that are kind of DIY, which, which is good up to a point or, or the groups that already outsource to somebody that maybe does kind of what you just said, Meb, which is, Hey, here's the allocations, go do it. Or here's your quarterly chart book. We kind of want to have a deeper relationship. And, and that does mean we're not going to work with thousands of advisors. That's, we understand that, but I think the right advisor is more important than the number of advisors. Was that a very subtle reference to JP Morgan's quarterly chart book? <laughs> you know, I, uh, there's, they've been now copied and we get a few of those. Avantis has one. I don't know who else does those. We, uh, we thought about doing our little spin on it at one point, but they do a pretty good job. There's some good charts in there and there's also some charts in there where I'm like, this is exceptionally misleading JP Morgan, but we love majority of their work there. And so for most of the, the advisors, what is like the main thing where you come in and either you're like, oh man, here's where we can help guys. This is like kind of embarrassing almost, or they're like, look, we know we're bad at X or we know we need some help with Y. Is it across the board? Is there one particular area that seems to be you guys are particularly useful in? Yeah, I think so. The thing, and we say this all the time, the thing that if we can help grow an advisor's business, that that's kind of the trump card. So that's kind of the universal want, not necessarily the universal need. It's the universal want of every advisor is how do I have bigger and better clients? Because kind of the 80-20 rule in the advisory space is you're going to have a small handful of clients or a subset of your, your overall book of business that generates the majority of wealth or the majority of revs for the advising practice. And so it's kind of like, how do I get more of that small handful and I think if we can help with the things required to get that business in the door, every advisor wants that. Because I know like a lot of your stuff, Meb, like, and, and I, you know, hats off to what you've built. And like I said earlier, just giving me the time of day 10 years or eight years ago, I think speaks volumes about you personally. And I, I've never met anybody that doesn't like you. So again, <laughs> thanks for the opportunity to chat through some of this stuff. But my DMs would disagree with you, but keep going. <laughs> well, well, I think the biggest need is really versions of performance chasing. Like if you if you look at advisors, I, I can't remember who was on the podcast with you that I was listening to, and it was like, you know, trying to strip everything away and focus on the process. 
Well, that, that may be the case when you're coming into a strategy, but it's never the case when you're exiting the strategy. And so what we try to do is to build a process around, like without saying this explicitly to all relationships is like, we want to make sure we ring your system of performance chasing. And that's, that's nearly impossible to do. So like one example, cause I know you love trend. I love trend. We started with a trend following strategy. We pivoted to now we're in this world where it's like beta plus these convex payoffs. Like how can I just give you the beta exposure knowing that there's a potential payoff that can allow me to take risks. But getting back to my trend example, you know, trend could be the best. Let's, we've got the best trend strategy in the world. Let's just hypothetically assume that. Well, it's going to go through periods where it works and where it doesn't work. And when do you think it's bought and when do you think it's sold? And that's where it's, you know, even like the extreme would be, you know, Kathy Wood's art back in, like everybody wanted it. Every conversation we had is like, well, should, should we have a 5% allocation? Should we have a 10% allocation? It's like, well, why do you want that allocation? Well, this thing's up 200%. This thing's up 100%. It's like, all right, well, let's look at what they own and try to justify this. And I'm not picking on them. It's just an example of the most extreme version of performance chasing that we've seen. So the want is growth. The need is an actual process that kind of can be far enough away from it to recognize when you're performance chasing, when you're not. I think it's fair to, to pick on someone who claims their stocks are going to do 50% a year for the next five years, which is now up to, it's got to be like 80% a year because two years have gone by anyway. So you have a great quote that says, strategy's return is much less important than an investor's return while exposed to the strategy, which really just summarizes what you talked about so succinctly. And we've mentioned this in the last few podcasts, and I think we got to print some out with some you know Cambria logo on it. But in a non-judgmental way, kind of sending this like very brief checklist to an investor just to help them walk through the thinking of, you know, partnering quote with, with our fund management ideas, but really applies to everything. And it was what you mentioned. It was like, first one is like, why did I buy this fund or strategy Two, when it comes time to rebound, like, will I rebalance? And if so, like, what's the criteria? How long do I plan on holding it? And, you know, is it time-based? Is it, you know, forever, whatever the, and then lastly is like, when it comes time to sell, like what criteria, what criteria will I use? And it's not trying to shame them, you know, but I think even for me personally, like having that note card, like in reviewing it and then being like, well, here's why, you know, we're going to sell it. And then does it have any of the criteria that we talked about? And it's like, no, it's down. Like, that's why we got to sell it. It's down, whatever it is. And I don't know if that would incent better behavior, but it would make me feel better. So in terms of like the convictions that I've gained over the last 10 years of doing this, one of them is I almost don't think like style tilts, factor tilts, you know, active management. I think a lot of that stuff is you have to be so convicted in that process because like everything's a trade-off. My wife gets upset with me because like I view the world in terms of like, what's my risk on this and what's my reward? And it better be asymmetric. So like if you have, if you have high active share and you get it right, it's like, hey, good job. If you have high active share and you get it wrong, you're cut, you're out. So there's like an asymmetric payoff. And so we think about it a lot in the OCO work where an outsourced chief investment officer, I hope, hopefully I 
started with that, but like, what are we adding into the portfolio and what is the level of conviction? Not, not from our side, but more from the advisor side. Do they understand the process? Have we helped them understand the process? What are the issues? When should it work? When won't it work? Um, do we know all these things going into it? Because do you think everybody owned dividend payers and value in 2021? Or do you think they bought them in 2022? Like it's been this glaring example. 2022 was where it's like, well, Q3 and Q4, well, we want to allocate into this, this, and this. It's like, well, okay, well, let's, let's talk through that. Well, guess what? Now, starting July in 2023, all of those things they wanted to allocate into are the things that are plus one on the year when the S&P is plus 15. So now those things are out of favor and they want to be sold. And that's, that's kind of, it's that behavior where just give me the beta. That's kind of my point is how, you know, we have this whole more stocks, less bonds for a lot of reasons. How can you make that shift without injecting too much risk in the like traditional risk level mindset? Um, and you only do that through convexity. Uh, but the nice part about beta is I don't have to worry about factor tilts or style tilts coming in and out of favor. Let's dig in there. I figured this is a good jumping off point to start talking about the investing side. Let's say you go into an advisor's office up the road in uh, Birmingham or and that you sit down and they say, JD, all right, here's my portfolio. 60% market cap weight US stocks, 40% 10-year treasuries. What are you going to tell them? What's the first words out of your mouth in this conversation? And then where does it go? And he says, I'm totally open-minded. I want to hear what you got. We're open to partnering with you guys. Lead me down the road. Yeah. The first thing we're going to talk through is is kind of the issues with what has worked in the past. So everybody, uh, that's an exaggeration, but a lot of people own some version of like a Vanguard or a BlackRock 6040. That's, you know, it's embedded in the financial world. The, the issue with that, and we talk, we've been talking more and more about this is what gets overlooked is the 40. Well, well, this has worked for the last 30 years. Take out 2022 and this has worked perfectly. Well, why has it worked? It's worked, one, because you've had this correlation benefit where you've been kind of structurally negatively correlated between equities and fixed, but you've also had fixed deliver substantial returns, substantial real returns because inflation's dropping, rates are dropping, and bonds are producing. And so now we would argue that 2022 was a slap in the face that this negative correlation where bonds have not only acted like a good diversifier, but also a good hedge. The difference between a diversifier and a hedge is correlation risk. Hedge has none, diversifier has some. And so bonds have been this positive carry, like significantly positive carry hedge. Now everybody has like grown accustomed to this portfolio that should work. So we would talk through, the first thing is say, hey, what happens if stocks and bonds are actually positively correlated? And what happens if your real returns from bonds, real, not nominal, real returns are going to be minuscule? What do you do then? How do you how do you combat that? And so we would kind of highlight the issues. Our solution would be first of all, how do people respond to that? Because, you know, we, we posted a great Twitter table. Listeners will put it in the show note links, but basically it, it was showing bond returns during kind of the worst S&P drawdowns or bad, really bad months for the past 120 years. But everyone assumes bonds will hedge during stock stock drawdown. And then obviously 64 got smashed last year. But 
for the better part of the early part of the 20th century, bonds often didn't hedge. I mean, like they often didn't, not only didn't help, but they, in, in some cases, were also down. So like the assumptions that you're talking about, so much of our world is is because of everyone's individualized experience, you know, what they grew up in or their, their prime learning, earning career part and in bonds for many places around the world, but particularly in the U.S., are not always the savior that they've come to be seen as. Yeah, I, th- I think it's an easier conversation with younger younger folks. Going back to the lifeblood that I mentioned earlier, I think most of those, you know, the cookie-cutter client is the, and, and this is, I understand this is not like everybody, but it's somebody that worked for 30, 35 years saved in a 401k and they retired with a couple million bucks. And most of that is the lifeblood. That type of trajectory, well, it's like, well, this hasn't worked. And and advisors are in that age. Most of them, I don't have the exact stats. I can just tell you from firsthand experience that that are people that their livelihoods have benefited from this kind of 60-40 mindset. And so coming in and saying, hey, historically, this has not been the case. Their reference point is, well, in my history, it has been the case. And so I think that the only way that you can kind of have that conversation is through performance, is to be able to show if you're in a 60-40 traditional mindset and we are able to get you to, say, an 80-20, can we produce better upside, but can we give you similar risk metrics? Like, that's the only, like, if you can show that, I think that's the way that you can get somebody to get out of the 60-40 mindset and, and being kind of handcuffed to the correlation benefits being there and the return drivers being there, which we think both of those things probably are not there. All right, well, let's hear the punchline. How does one wave the wand and do that? I want to hear where the magic uh, happens. What, is, what does one do? Because, you know, this would be like a retort everyone would say is say, well, yeah, 60-40 was bad last year, but man, it's doing just fine this year. JD, what are you talking about? I'm just going to do that. Or maybe I'll just hang out in 5% T-bills. What am I missing? Yeah. So, so you're, you're, nothing's perfect. Let's, let's get that out, out of the gate. But our whole thing is if you have something embedded in portfolios. So we talk a lot about like actual hedge protection. So convexity associated with hedges. And I know a lot of people have, have started more, more and more people have started talking about this, but all returns come from yield and growth or multiples expanding. So you can you can make that more complicated, but we we always revert back to a yield plus growth framework where you know, the yield's easy to understand, growth is harder but not that hard to understand, and then multiples expanding is the third driver. And we kind of say if you go decade by decade and I can I can pop you with this chart. It's it's a good one to show some decades multiples expanding is beneficial, other decades it's not. In aggregate, it's kind of a goose egg. So if yield and growth are the drivers and we're building portfolios like that quote that you said, that's kind of front and center of our minds when we're building portfolios. How can we build something that somebody can stick with? Well, if we can take vol and use you view it as an asset class, use it to enhance yield, which we've got a whole suite of funds now that's designed specifically for that. So here's your beta with some yield. If we can juice the yield and we can give you exposure to more of the G, so own more stocks, less bonds, because we always make the point, you know, your your 5% government bond 
it's the government's never going to come out and say, "Hey, Meb, we're going to we're going to pay you a little bit more interest this year." Like you're going to get what the coupon is. And the, think about the outcome. If I'm giving you beta, but I'm giving you 80/20 rather than 60/40, in a 2023, who's mad at you? Nobody. In a 2022, if your convexity is actually there to protect against drawdowns, it's not going to be a great year because convexity, especially like especially like low delta stuff, didn't pay out, but higher delta stuff did. And so, if you have the right blend of convexity that you actually mitigate some of that risk and have similar risk metrics than a 60/40, you you actually I think you're going to long term compound wealth at a faster rate and do it in a way that's behaviorally more digestible from the advisor. Let's make this tangible. Give us an example. You guys have how many? Seven funds now? Eight? Give us an example of what this would illustrate. What is like, walk us through one of the strategies. You got some good tickers, man. By the way, if you learned anything from our first chat uh, 10 years ago or whenever it was, you guys have some good tickers. Listeners, we got ACIO, DRSK for de-risk. Dubs, I dub, juicy. We'll dig into them, but um, g- give us an example. Which one should we start with? Yeah, the, the easiest one to start with is juicy. So, like, th- this is a J U C Y listeners. J U C Y, yes. So, this is something that, like you mentioned, five percent T bills. We we absolutely love that. So, w- where we see a huge opportunity in the market, and why we launched this, is because we felt like if the market for T-bills is 5% right now. Let's let's just put 85% of the portfolio in T-bills and then let's put an option overlay on the other 15%. And and I'm like the guys will will make fun of me. I'm anti short ball. Like I am I'm never a fan of short ball. But the way that you enhance yield is through being short ball, but we have a cap on how we're doing it. There's other, you know, like Franklin Income Fund has been using the same types of overlay for many years. There's other funds doing things like this, but the point of Juicy was to say, if I can give you something that's 85% T-bills with an option overlay to juice the yield, and if we can do that without getting your face ripped off, I'm giving you kind of like cash, like beta with this additional yield. I think that's attractive. And then dubs is the same thing for S&P, like domestic equities. And IDUB is the same thing for international equities. And so we view those as building blocks. That's kind of like, you know, our opinion, better beta. It's just beta because you're going to get significant portions of the beta with more yield. Okay. Well, let's, let's, let's hang out on Juicy for a minute. This thing has got what looks like maybe perhaps around 8% yield is what it's showing. And we're recording this kind of the, around July 4th. And, uh, but walk through like kind of what does what this strategy actually do? Uh, to talk to the extent you can give away a little more of if the advisor says, okay, I'm interested, but tell me a little more. Yep. So the nice part about Juicy is we are writing ELNs, so equity link notes. So Juicy's 85% treasuries and then 15, This is these are all rough estimates, not exact, 15% in ELNs. And so these ELNs, we're structuring the payoff of certain things in the market with counterparties. And so we're going to we're going to short ball. Most people think of like covered calls as as, you know, that's a way to receive some some income from the option premium or selling puts to receive premium. We're doing a version of call writing in these ELNs to generate that additional yield. And the nice part is each of these ELNs, there's path dependency and options. 
anytime you're going to talk about options, you're going to have path dependency risk. So you can reduce path dependency by frequency. So we're, we're frequently writing these ELNs. We're doing it with multiple counterparties. It's a short vol strategy that can benefit from rising volatility because of that frequency that I mentioned. And, you know, in a perfect world, Juicy can be kind of a staple in portfolios and viewed as a more conservative allocation to help juice the Y plus the Y and the Y plus G framework. So for the investor looking to add this, and by the way, listeners, this has only been around for not even a couple of years now and well over, I think, 400 million. So congrats. Um, the advisors that are using this, where, where does this fit in for them? Are, you said, are they taking out part of something else? Or are they putting it in the alts bucket? How do they slot this in? What's the narrative? So the initial adoption that we saw was mainly like a cash bucket. So we we joke around the launch of Juicy, um, we viewed it as a tool to say, hey, Meb, do you have X cash sitting at your bank account that's paying you nothing, your checking account, your savings account? And so we felt like it was a good tool to go offer something. Hey, this is going to be more income than your money market, more income than your deposits at your bank. We like to joke that uh, the timing of some of these cash sweeps was the same timing as some of the bank issues that were out there. So we we like to say we had a part to play in that, which is obviously not true. But we saw initially as a cash-like vehicle that that was kind of how it was viewed. We, you know, there's there's obviously other risk associated with it than that's not associated with cash. But then when it comes to the overall allocation, we see it mainly as a fixed income. Like we don't see many advisors thinking of it as an alt. It's viewed more as, hey, if we're going to allocate to fixed income, it's going to have less duration than like a ag type benchmark. And so that they're going to be, it's going to be used as to either lower duration and enhance, enhance yield, which is a good combo. First question, probably out of the advisor's mouth. All right, JD, you're telling me eight, 10, 12% yields. What's the catch? Where's the big risk? When does this fund get walloped? When will it likely struggle? Or what's the big swan sort of risk for this type of fund? Yeah, we've heard that question you're asking worded differently. But uh, <laughs> worst case scenario for a Juicy is is a market that's like an S&P 500 that's up 10% each month. Up 10, up 10, up 10. Because anytime that there's a version of covered calls being used, a covered call is selling a call. So you're selling away the upside. If the underlying goes through your strike and realizes that upside, that's obviously going to cost you money. And I do think, as a side note, that's one thing that's misunderstood. On a lot of people get mesmerized by, hey, I just sold, you know, ten grand of premium of calls in Nvidia. It's like that's great. It's going to hurt when you buy back that ten grand for fifty grand, you know. And and so in in juicy, the worst case scenario is a market that's just ripping higher and higher. Which, by the way, seems like the kind of the market the last couple of months, and it doesn't look like the fund has really, you know, suffered from it. Yes. So there's some nuance in the way that we're structuring the ELNs that allow us to mitigate some of that risk where it would have to be literally like a straight up market. Because if you're, if we're, you know, separating when we write these notes, y- you get the benefit of, hey, a 6% rip in the market may affect one of the ELNs, which is going to be a very small slice of the overall pie, but it's not going to be detrimental to the ones on either side of it. And so if you're just constantly recycling these ELN payoffs, that's where you can get the benefit of this yield without really stepping in front of any landmines. Interesting. 
give me something else. If we're done talking about this one, or if there's anything else we want to touch on this one. I'm a, a big fan of long vol. And so th- this goes back to, you know, a lot of what you've, you know, some of the content that you put out is great stuff. And I think kind of my real world experience of when, when you're talking about like factor tilts, when you're talking about trend, when you're talking about different things to portfolio construction, it's where those things are needed and valuable without a doubt. But where, where we see less like behavioral issues is when we can just say, hey, here's the beta. On the, the yield side, we've kind of covered juicy dubs and IDUB or similar story. But on the long vol piece, like de-risk to us, it was our flagship fund, really still is. It's supposed to be a bond replacement, but it is inherently long vol. So if markets rip higher, that should benefit de-risk. If markets rip lower, that should benefit de-risk. And I think when you think of like true long vol exposure, this is a concept, Meb, that I think is like fascinating and probably few people want to chat as much as I do about it, but where say you're capturing 50 to 75% of a rising market and less than 50% of a falling market, can that be beneficial to the overall allocation? Well, if you're benchmark 60-40, we think it can be. Let's just own more of the equities and let's give away some of the upside with that additional exposure if we know protection is there in the downside. And I think that's kind of our thesis across the board is, hey, can we improve the yield of a portfolio? And can we take this negative returning thing that the presence of its potential payoff, just the presence of it allows us to take more risk? That's going to do wonders for our ability to compound capital over a longer period of time. So of those two, D-Risk and ACIO, which one uh, you want want to dig in a little deeper into? Which one uh, do you want to lead with? So ACO is a is a take on a collared strategy. And for the listeners, what does that mean? Yeah, a collared strategy is three components, long equities, short calls, long puts. So different variations of that. I think the overwhelming like covered call collared exposures you can get are going to be some form of beta on the underlying and then they're going to be short calls on the index, long puts on the index. And so what we talk a lot about is let's assume you're long, you know, the S&P or whatever it is. If you short calls on the S&P and buy puts, well, puts are more expensive than calls. So let's say, remember, where you sell calls, that's your ceiling. So let's say you want to take the premium that you sell. So the upside that you sell away, you're going to receive premium. Let's absorb that premium and pay for protection. Well, if your goal is to be neutral on Let's just use what we collect to as what we spend. Well, you're going to have your underlying equity. You're going to have a ceiling. I'm making these numbers up, but it's going to be somewhat close. You're going to have a ceiling that's plus three with a floor that's minus eight. So plus three minus eight, that's asymmetric, but it's in the wrong direction. And so what we do in ACO that's different, kind of the, the big differentiator is we're going to sell underlying equity calls. So those like NVIDIA calls are going to be at 70, 80, 90 implied vol. The S&P is not going to be at that. So there's no arbitrage. Like there's a reason NVIDIA is priced differently than the S&P, but the structure of the collar strategy in general, we think we can bump the ceiling to, you know, plus seven, plus eight, plus 10. And we can actually keep floors that are somewhat, 
you know, like minus five or tighter. That's kind of the goal of the strategy. You may have mentioned it, but, but how do they traditionally use it? Is it more like an equity swap? They take out the part of the stocks? It depends on how portfolios are constructed. We've we've seen ACO used as like a low vol swap. So if people have allocated to some type of low vol in the past, it makes sense that, or it could make sense. Um, we've also seen it on kind of the more sketchy credit spectrum. So if there's some high yield type exposure, we've seen ACO used there. And we've also seen it as just a core, a core equity, knowing that there's going to be lower beta associated with it which really filters into kind of our more stocks, less bonds mantra. We'll get to this in a minute. I was going to say, I want to hear how you kind of want, would, uh, if someone's like, you know what, JD, I want to put, I just, I love you guys. I, I want to kind of put all y'all's funds in a, what is a, what does Bridgewater call their combination of all weather and pure alpha? It's called like optimum strategy or optimal allocation or something. Anyway, we'll hear about that in a minute. But first I, I want to hear about, let's hop over to de-risk. And you can tell us a little more about that one and what's the difference there. Yeah, D-Risk has a benefit right now that we've never had, which is actual yield on the underlying bonds. So D-Risk is going to be majority in kind of investment grade bond ladder. And then what we do, so call that 90 to 95%. And then with the remaining 500 to 1,000 BIPs, 5 to 10%, we're going to own call options on the S&P and the individuals. So it's like a, almost like a form of dispersion where we're, we're buying the underlying, but we're going to pair that with puts. And th- this is like, why does that matter? Full transparency here, D-Risk has had a crappy 2023. That's really the first five months of 2023 is the only period that we would say, hey, D-Risk has looked like it just hadn't played out like we'd hoped. Like this is the, one of the things that's assumed in, in the option space that I think is assumed incorrectly. You know, if you have 500 BIPs and call options that expire between six, seven, eight months out and the market sells off 20% quick, it's like, well, what happens with that? Well, prices fall, but falls rise. So if you think about the pricing of an option, yeah, your, your nearness to the money is a really important factor, but so is implied vols. So if you've got 500 bips in calls, the market sells off, your calls go from people that, well, it's zero, you're going to lose that money. Well, you're actually going to lose less than you think because you've got time to maturity, to expiration, and you've got the, the buoy of rising vols across the board. So we try to pair that with puts whose time to expiration is much closer. So you get this like the ability, like this gamma, like the ability for Delta to move on your puts much faster than it does on your calls. And so you have like a fourth quarter of 18 is a perfect example of you lose money on the calls, but you make more money on your puts faster. And so that's kind of, we view de-risk, like its use in the portfolio is to say, again, all this is in the kind of more stocks, less bonds, but to say, hey, we're gonna own a X percent slug in de-risk knowing that of that X percent, it's kind of like the whole capital efficient mantra. You're going to get, you know, more equity exposure embedded into the allocation because of de-risk presence. You've heard about value investing from the likes of Warren Buffett, Peter Lynch and Seth Klarman. But have you thought about applying those same principles of value investing to fixed income? The Cambria Tactical Yield ETF, ticker symbol TYLD 
invest tactically across a variety of fixed income sectors, and REITs based on yield spreads to U.S. Treasury bills. When yield spreads are narrow, TYLD intends to hold U.S. Treasury bills. When yield spreads are sufficiently wide, TYLD intends to invest and hold positions in various global fixed income sectors and REITs. Visit cambriafunds.com slash TYLD to learn more. Again, that's cambriafunds.com slash TYLD to learn more. Cambria Funds are distributed by Alps Distributors, Inc. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of capital. To determine if this fund is an appropriate investment for you, carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risk factors, charges, and expense before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's full or summary prospectus, which may be obtained by calling 855-383-4636, ETF info, or by visiting the website at www.cambriafunds.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing or sending money. International investments may involve risk of capital loss not associated with domestic investing. Bonds and bond funds are subject to interest rate risk and will decline in value amid rising interest rates. So... As we're thinking about this, have people behaved? You know, kind of what we were going back to at the beginning of our conversation, the end investors, timing strategies, timing allocations. Has your audience been pretty good? You kind of want to slap them on the wrist a little bit? Like how the, are they following the flows, chasing performance? What's the review? So two ways to answer that. One way is I think this new ELN suite, so the enhanced yield suite, will will really help with performance chasing just because dubs, IDUB, and Juicy are just beta. And and that goes along. We're not taking a whole bunch of risk. For the other funds, there's always going to be some type of performance chasing. And, and we would, like, we try hard internally to ring our process of performance chasing because it is really hard especially when you're held not only for the strategy's performance, but you're held accountable for the model performance. Like I'll, I'll bring this up and hopefully this will resonate with you, Mev, but my favorite strategy in, in, and I'm, I'm fine to like, kind of like picking your favorite kid. I love all my kids equally, but my strategies, I love them differently. Um, our tail strategy. So add me is my fa- is my absolute favorite. Oh boy. Okay. Well, it's, it is um, the most hated that we have. So <laughs> I was going to say it's your fourth biggest fund, so it's not the most popular. Let's hit that one while we're here. I mean, I want to hear your favorite. What's the deal? Is this favorite for all the time or favorite right now? Favorite right now for sure. Not not all the time, but you just own beta. So the underlying is beta. We have the ability to sell some calls to reduce the cost of tail exposure, and then we carry tails. So we carry tails at all times. So like I, I always point to... And, and we had, a, I should say this, we had a strategy change. ADME changed in basically 2019. Um, I believe November of 19 was the strategy change. So that was actually, ADME was our original fund and we converted it into the tail fund. So 2020 was a first great test. And obviously if you had one or two deltas, you know this as well as anybody, like 2020 was a great year to have tail exposure. We ended up the year right in line with the market with much less drawdown. 2021 was fine. You know, we trailed, we had drag from the tails, but we're not, we're not there to capture a hundred plus percent of the market. And then 2022 happened and everybody hated it because, you know, convexity and this is like, when I say convexity, that sounds like a fancy word, but like, this is important anytime we're obviously big options based. Like we believe you fix portfolio construction. I think you can fix portfolio construction with, with options exposure and you can do it by taking more beta instead of taking different factor tilts and things like that. 
what does 50 delta mean? 50 delta means that for every 1% move in the underlying, you're going to move 50 cents. So a dollar up, you're going to move 50 cents. Dollar down, you're going to move 50 cents. Well, a 50 delta option is going to be much more expensive than a one delta option. And so in a, in a market that's falling, that's free falling, like a Q1 of 2020, your 50 delta options are going to help, but your one delta options are going to go bonkers. They're going to go, they're going to, with VIX going to 80, with markets free falling, there's convexity embedded in those tails that's massive. Why is it massive? Is because you're probably protecting over 100% notional easily. To get 100% notional protection on a 50 delta option, you'd have to spend an arm and a leg. The different strategies we have, like ACO has higher deltas. ADME has lower deltas. And so we try to blend those in allocations where you're going to get some benefits from convexity. But you might not; it might not be optimal at at the individual strategy level. And so, ADME is a perfect example. Tails in general is a perfect example of like convexity just didn't pay you in 2022, and obviously that's not good for flows. You mentioned you know thinking about strategy changes, thinking about the funds. How do you think about that? You know, is that something that most of these are they entirely rules based? Are they? mostly rules-based? Is it discretion? Like, how, how do you guys kind of tell the story around what, what your funds do? Yeah. So we're big on having a system in place. We view the system as not the end-all be-all. It's the guardrails of the discretion. This is how I like to describe it. You know, eight years ago, if I had an investment idea, I would, you know, go to your website and see if you had anything. I'd go to a bunch of different people's website and see what I could find and try to read up on it. Now, if I have an idea, I can just roll backwards and say, Hey, will you take a look at this? What do you think about this? And so having a team that has the experience and the know-how to think creatively and to think well about some of these things has done a ton for us and for our overall business to be able to say, Hey, let's launch options-based strategy that have system. That's the discretions guardrails. And then let's have folks that know what they're doing, making the decisions. And that's where, you know, we, we I think I think we do have, you know, I'd, I'd put our team up against anybody just in terms of their experience and expertise in these areas. Talk to me a little bit about putting these all together. Is there a way that like you kind of sit down with advisors and say, hey, look, you know, I hear you. You do the 60-40 thing. But, you know, over here is kind of our model what we really like is if you were to go all in on us or just like you really think about putting these Legos into a box. Like, do you do that at all? Or like going back to the Bridgewater analogy, or is it more just like, no, these are um, rifle solutions to where we're pinpointing, you know, where you may only need one or two of them. How do you kind of talk about that? Yeah, I would point to any success that we've had in terms of building relationships and, and, gaining assets is is come from experience. And so if you think about like our first two funds that we launched, one was concentrated momentum with a trend overlay. The other one was concentrated value with a tail overlay. And the whole they were they were built to mesh together. And I don't want to spend any time on that, but our first basically three years, two year, two and a half years of existence was like those funds were built. If one was doing well, the other was not and vice versa. And we would come in and say, Hey, Meb, you know, if you're going to allocate X percent, do half of X here and half of X here. 
And the typical response was, well, that one's done a whole lot better. I want to own that one. That one hadn't done well. I'm not going to touch that one. And so that experience collided with kind of, hey, let's launch these end models and let's show, let's illustrate how we would use them in a total portfolio context. So now, now every new fund idea that we have and that we want to bring to the table, we want to make sure that there's some type of fit within kind of our model framework. And then we have to have the resources, the technology and services that we've built internally to be able to deal with an advisor that has different exposures. How do we incorporate what we're doing? If we can be aligned on the investment front, how can that alignment manifest itself in the, the end exposures based on where they are now and where we think they should be? And so long-winded way of saying we think about them in the total portfolio context without a doubt. So as you look to the horizon, uh, it's summer 2023. You guys got any more harebrained ideas on the docket? You guys, anything you can talk about that you think uh, you're thinking about or that you think is missing from the playbook? The biggest thing that we're rolling out is we, we spent the last four years on like some internal technology that we're using with a lot of our OCO. And I think that we've kind of we've really dug in the last few years to get that to a point where we can actually roll it out to the rest of the world. And I think that that's going to do, that's going to do a lot. That That's the biggest thing that we're working on is once we roll that out. Give us a preview, man. You can't just mention that and not say what it is. Like broadly speaking, what are some of the things you're thinking about there? Like the high level stuff is, is really not the hardest stuff in the world. It's the low level stuff that is the grind. And and I'm talking about like operating an advisor's business. So like, what are the the single account issues, tax transitions, um, concentrated holdings, how to protect them, legacy issues, all of these things. We've built internal systems to where we can kind of like track. And, and we've been doing this. It's been so, this is the first time mentioning it, really. We've been doing all this, watching kind of like the whole direct indexing, you know, how much money that's raising and and how much how how different people are talking about it but our whole kind of thesis is if meb has 100 million in assets he's going to have 20 million that can be modeled out immediately he's going to have 80 million that need help and so we need a system in place that helps and this is this is the last thing i'll say on this i think if you build a piece of technology and this goes back to my either dumb or smart depends on your perspective but if you build a piece of te- technology that can scale, I believe it is really hard to take a scalable solution and shrink it down to the needs of an advisor at the account level on a day-to-day basis. Where we had the benefit is we were willing to do that work manually for the first few years and then figure out ways. And, and now we've got, you know, we got a full-blown tech team now, which is obviously helpful at saying, hey, it would be really nice if I could do this and not have to press 18 buttons to do this and to go to these four different screens. And so we've been, that's really what we've been doing for the last three, four years, which has been probably the biggest learning experience and, and definitely the biggest test of patience that I've ever gone through business-wise. Yeah, you know, we talk a lot about the business and money management versus, you know, money management and asset management. And there's so much sludge and slog involved in uh, everything, not just with compliance and um, but dealing just with a lot of the things you mentioned. But that also can be what differentiates certainly advisors and makes the 
practice ability to scale, which you uh, talked about earlier. But that's cool. And particularly if you can get a great deal of that automated and systematic, it makes life a lot easier too. So fun. I'm excited to see it. Give me a, give me a sneak peek when you guys are uh, ready to roll. So the way you've built it is, I think, a very thoughtful approach to um, the asset management business. And hopefully it creates longer lasting relationships. Um, as you think about marketing and getting the word out there, how do you guys think about it? I hear you got some good swag. I haven't seen it, but what do you guys do? Are you going to conferences, playing golf? Like, how do you publish in articles? Is it mostly through the website? How do you think about that world? So I got mixed feelings on this, um, on just the best way to approach it. So I, I'm not a huge, you know, I don't, I don't do a ton of stuff on social media and all that stuff. And like, th- this is the type of format and I'm not, I'm not blowing smoke here, but this is the most helpful type of format for us in terms of I'm not like the interview, the sound bites and stuff like that aren't great, you know, for like really driving home points and things like that. So this this type of stuff is right. But, you know, your y'all's strategies, it's not the like headline level. Hey, I'm buying the hack ETF where it's like the title gives everyone like you probably should read the Aptus Prospectus, right? It's like a, you guys are doing what you're doing is a little more. And I say this in a good way, like a little more involved, complicated, deliberate than just buying, say, you know, a biotech ETF or something. Yep. Yeah. And, and index based for sure. And I think that the hack reference just lets me know you've been in the ETF world for at least 10 years, but they got new owners. Uh, I, know, I saw that. that. I just saw. All right. Well, keep going. So marketing swag. Yeah. I think we really lean on our network that we have now for when somebody comes across us, we'll do a conference or two. We've got a couple partners that we, at least we view as, as really solid partners that help us get in front of the types of advisors that we need. And then once we make a contact, we really lean on our network to kind of speak for us. Because obviously if you say, if you're a prospective advisor trying to use us and you ask us if we're any good, we're probably going to tell you that we think we're pretty good. So it's really done wonders for us to have kind of a growing network of folks that are willing to say, yeah, give them my number and let us chat about just the ins and outs of their business and our business and how we interact and things like that. And so I want to hear about this juicy swag. What are you guys passing out? Are you going to send us some? What do you got? Well, so that's like a, that's like a, you know, a joke in the, in the office when uh, somebody asked what kind of swag do we need to get for juicy? And the answer was sweatpants. So we'll, we'll (laughs) we'll have to, we'll have to figure that out. That's funny. It was 4th of July here for, I forget why they canceled the fireworks show, but there was a reason, but they did a drone show. And I was like, what, what does a drone show cost? Is it like $10,000? Like, is it like a hundred? I was like, we, we could do some drone shows here with some ETFs at some of these yeah. conferences. So <laughs> I need to look into it. I, my guess is it's more expensive than I would expect, but. Without a doubt. I meant to start with this, Meb, but We've been chatting for however long we have. So I had to go up to Denver. This is whatever it was, a month, maybe not a month ago. And uh, on Sunday, before I had to go to Denver, the Nugs had the Timberwolves game four about to sweep them. And I told my wife, I said, hey, if the t- we're, we're Timberwolves fans today, because if the Nuggets lose, they have to play game five at home. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you to Denver. 
So I went to my first NBA playoff game, game five, when they beat the the Timberwolves, and it was an my wife's now a Denver Nuggets fan. So we had a, we had a blast. I have a pretty funny story where my brother and I went to game two of the finals, and A, being a quant, B, being a cheap bastard, I knew that generally for every event in history, the prices go down right around until the game starts, right? So if you can just hold out emotionally, you'll probably get tickets for a lot cheaper. And so we went to the uh, Denver has a in-stadium Breckenridge pub that's got like, you know, grizzly bears and mountain lions. It's just a very Western themed, but they let open it up early. We wait till right before game time, buy some tickets. And because of the flood of the app, basically the purchase went through, but never got the tickets. Long story short, we end up sitting in the pub for the entire game. So we never got to go. They refunded us and actually gave me a giant credit, which was good because I actually got to go to game five um, and see the final. However, I had to take the last flight out of Denver because I was told under no circumstances was I going to miss kindergarten graduation. So the morning flight was too risky to me. I was like, I can't take the morning flight. They get delayed all the time, yada, yada. Sure enough, my last flight out of Denver on Southwest, they did the rolling 30-minute delay. So I get to the airport. It's like your flight's at 11, 11.30, 12, 12.30, 1, 2, 2.30. They finally go, flight's canceled. And I'm like panicking because like I really want to be at this graduation and I feel guilty. Um, but they like moved it to 6 a.m. But I'm also this psychopath at the airport because I flew for 24 hours with no no bags. So no laptop, no AirPods, no jacket, no nothing. Like it, like I look like you know a crazy person. But I'm also at the airport, freezing, and there's nothing to do because it's two thirty in the morning. So there's no TVs, there's no restaurants open. I can't go to sleep because it's too cold. So I, I must have taken like fifty thousand steps. I just walked for like four hours. I'm like, there's nothing else to do anyway. There was a drone show after game two that said Nuggets and five, and I was like, oh, perfect. They nailed it. But I'm like who's sponsoring that drone show? Like, why would you, why, why don't you just like a, the drone owner? It can't be the nuggets. I'm like, what a strange, anyway, long-winded story. But so the flight is at 6 a.m. I'm on board. I'm still wearing all my nuggets clothing. You know, we pull out of the, the gate and they're like, uh, hold on. Um, one of our wings are loaded incorrectly. And I'm just like head in hand. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe it. Like we're, we're on the way out. Anyway, we fixed it. We get home. I made it with two minutes to spare. Uh, didn't shower. I did brush my teeth, um, but, uh, but I made it and well worth it. But it was a really fun game, fun time. Talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, as we're talking about a lot of y'all's ideas, you know, the question we love asking people is what is one investing belief do you hold that the vast majority of your investing peers do not share professionals? So two thirds, 75% would say, JD, I don't agree with what you just said. Is there any one or you probably got a few, but what are some that come to mind? There's probably a few that maybe not 75% would disagree, but I think this whole, the whole idea of, and maybe I'm wrong on this. I'd, I'd love to hear what you think, but if you were to separate out the, I'm not going to use an insurance analogy because th that's too easy, but if you were to separate out the premium that you spend on the potential payoff for of protection and equity sell-offs, I think a lot of people focus on the standalone, 
that's ugly. I don't want that. That's negative. And I'm growing in conviction that somehow there's got to be a better way to communicate this negative thing as a standalone basis. Its presence in the portfolio is what allows an investor to compound wealth on a real basis more effectively than a 60-40 mindset where you're dependent on bonds. And I think that's, and I do go back and forth, Matt, this is like, I haven't shared this with my team yet, so we might need to edit this one out. But most investors, like I can only, can you think of any other goal other than to compound wealth or income off the portfolio? Like maybe there's other objectives of an investment portfolio that that I'm not thinking of for, for... I mean, there's some fringe stuff where there's the bragging rights. There's people that want to be able to say, you know what, I bought NVIDIA. You know what, I bought... They like the bragging rights and this probably in the angel investing world too. Hey, I was in on Google when they were just in a garage. But other than that, as far as traditional portfolio, if you're not a braggart, there's not really much. You know, I mean, there's there's the, the people that get siloed. Hey, I'm a, my portfolio yields 6%. What is yours? You know, like sort of weird, but it's rarely outside of, I just want to brag about it type of goals. That's kind of where, so if the goal is either income or compounding wealth. Like let, let's just take away the income for a second. If the goal is compounding wealth, like I don't know how important a conservative, a moderate, a growth, like sh- shouldn't we just build the portfolio that we are most convicted that could compound at the highest rate? And sometimes that's going to be a more aggressive portfolio by like traditional measures, or sometimes it's going to be more conservative. So that's, it's not a well thought out argument, but I think that the whole risk base and we we operate in this framework too, so I'm pointing pointing at ourselves here. But I don't I don't know how much I don't know if that's the right way to go about it. Is to say, well, you're Meb, you're this old and you have this much money, therefore, boom, here's where you default to. I think the goal should be like, hey, what portfolio is going to compound wealth at the highest rate, and can I stomach it? Yeah, I think the struggle for most people is they don't know what the answer to that is. So, um, you know, they would say. I think people just disagree on what the opportunity set is. There's the efficient market crowd. So then it's just a question of, you know, stocks, bonds, other things. There's the people who take a much more strategic view. Hey, foreign stocks are cheaper. Small caps or value looks better now than in other times, whatever it may be. Commodities have been terrible. Maybe, you know, so I, I feel like it's not as simple as, as if as if the answer was known ahead of time. Right. You know, so I think there's two parts of that is like, if you could even guess in the longer time frame, the answer gets clear to me, you know, but I think people definitely struggle with that. And then that un- uncertainty informs them saying, oh shit, maybe I don't know what I'm doing. Maybe, you know, for maybe it is US stocks forever and foreign stocks are terrible. And why would anyone invest in them? It's been 10 years now, you know, whatever, whatever it may be. I don't know. If you're building a portfolio today, right now, if I said, hey, here's 10 million bucks. What percentage of that portfolio is going into like private investments? Are you asking me? Are you asking, I'm me asking that, question? You that question? Man, um, this is a, and is this for me or is this for just someone? Because, because, you know, the problem, the feature bug of the private liquidity part that I think has been well documented in some cases, it's great. In other cases, it's not great. Like if you look at what's going on with BREIT, and investors getting stuck in something that they weren't really, I don't think they really believe they would get stuck in it. You know, there's there's things where people think 
you tell me it's a liquid, but it's not really. Oh, it actually is a liquid. Oh shit! I didn't actually expect you to be serious when you said that. Um, the chances I thought were slim, but I think on the public side, you know, I love the concept of designing it ahead of time, putting it into practice, and going away for a decade. You know, and and so that the, the the funds and strategies will sort of react to what's going on in the world, and that's sort of my goal. Like I want to, I don't want to pay any attention to the public stuff, like just set it up, check it in 10 minutes a year, the private, you know, the same thing, but you better be really certain on the private side on the buy decision because you're stuck, right? There is, there is no. And so really it's a question of, to me at, at that point of then cash flows and needs and do you need this money and what's the purpose of it? So I think, I think it totally varies for people and mine has, is sounds more scientific than probably it, it was and is, but it's also getting blurry on the private side. You know, you can, there's a lot of what it means to be private. Sorry, this is a long-winded rambling answer, but anyway, you had a input on the. We've just had exposure, more exposure recently than we've ever had to different things that are interesting. They don't, that aren't like your, Hey, here's some type of platform where you can go get them. This true kind of, and some of them it really makes you scratch your head on like how much of this stuff is real. And if it is real, what what percentage of the portfolio should go there? And, and we're not we're not like recommending any of this to advisors. This is just more of like, you know, if you had a ten million dollar family walk in the door and say, "Hey, I've got these interesting opportunities, and here's like what is reasonable for to take that illiquid and the the risk that y- you can't see your statement on a monthly basis and know what's going on, how much of the portfolio goes there." Yeah, is it going to keep cousin or nephew Eddie from mucking around with the portfolio and spending it all on Bugattis or whatever else? Then maybe it does all need to be uh, private. You know, I, I was thinking in my head as you're talking about it, I'm like, there's some areas that I definitely would love to see a public illiquid variant, like a farmland interval fund, I think would be a perfect solution for that world that's not in existence. But yeah, I mean, I think it comes a lot down to, are you trying to keep someone else or yourself from mucking around with it than having those safeguards. You know, we talked for a long time on this podcast, the concept of like the forever fund where, you know, you allocate and you get penalized for redeeming early, but the rewards go to shareholders. Like that to me is a really cool idea. It's a great idea. It has to exist and it has to exist in the mutual fund. Oh, you say it's a great idea and I agree with you, but I don't think anyone would actually invest in it. (laughs) I think, uh, I think people would say, ah, that's brilliant, smart, but you know, I'm logical. So I would never do something like that. So I'm not going to, you know, I don't know. And I also think I'd get sued. But when we get big enough, I think we'll give it a go. What's your most memorable investment? Anything come to mind? Easy answer there. I don't know if this is a good thing to say out loud or bad. I know I've shared it before. But when I was in college, I was in grad school. Actually, I believe it was my senior year going into grad school. I bought a penny stock. So I had my E-Trade account doing my thing. And you know, you're not talking about much money here, but we had practice. I played basketball and I had to get to the gym. So I placed the trade, went to the gym, practiced and showered up. This is not that long ago, but it's long ago enough that like, no, there wasn't, everybody didn't have laptops. It was like, you had your desktops in the, in the study room area. So I'm like, all right, before we head out, I'm going to go check my E-Trade account. And the thing. What year was this? This was probably 08. So this is like in the middle of some ball. 
Things are going nuts. Yes. Things are going nuts. So I paid, you know, some crazy low whatever, and I checked, and the thing was up. Like, you know, it had gone from like a cent to like two bucks and 40 cents. I mean, it was, it was. Cr- you were the, uh, the Reddit meme stalkers before it was cool. So w- what I did with, and the reason why I remember that is because I literally cashed that out and bought a ring for my wife. That was, <laughs> that's how <laughs> the penny stock, that's penny true. stock trade right there. That was my most memorable by far. Yeah. And hopefully you stayed away from them afterwards. There's an old blog post we did listeners who I'm sure no one remembers at this point. I'm going to search it real quick it was called is it time to do a templeton and there was a quote it's funny to look back at my blog from 15 20 years ago because these um all the formatting got jacked up but it says in 1939 with hitler's germany ravaging europe john templeton bought a hundred dollars of every stock trading below one dollar on the new york and american stock exchanges the trade got him a junk pile of some 104 companies 34 of which were bankrupt for a total investment of roughly $10,400. Four years later, he sold these stocks for more than 40 grand. So whatever that is, a three-bagger. And I said, it, and I did this, This, I mean, nice timing on my post, but it was March 2009. I said, is it time to do a template? I said, if you ran the screen today, it returns about 300 stocks from a list of about 2,500. If you then, I, for some unknown reason, I sorted them by number of insider buys to narrow it down. I mean, you can go back and actually look at the names. And I said, there's some truly nauseating charts in there. A lot of these are tiny micro caps with, you know, they're in like five to 150 million range. And it absolutely smoked it over the next uh, year or two. I bet. I didn't buy any, of course, because, you know, it sort of reminds me there was an old idea that we talked about that was thinking about market neutral. You know, people love to think about some of these ideas like market neutral and our buddy Wes Gray talks about, you know, like even God would get fired as an active manager because even if you were perfect, there's just times when the the uh, strategy goes inverted and backwards and you lose on both sides. But market neutral, you know, when the market really goes down a lot, so 50% plus, it doesn't make as much sense to me to be shorting at that point. You know, like the big loss has already happened. And so thinking about removing that short exposure because those a lot of those things that have gone down particularly in the individual securities 90 percent, 95 percent, like you mentioned there's a point where it's just like kindling and they just go nuclear to the upside we haven't had that many markets like this in a long time they just most of these markets sort of uh go down 20 percent and rip right back up but um at some point i imagine it'll be healthy and nice to have a nice nice normal bear market once again it'll happen at some point at some point, JD, um, this has been a lot of fun. Where do people go? They want to find out more about your funds. They want you to ring them up, come visit them and walk through your uh, CIO process. What's the best place? Yeah. So just our website, Aptus Capital Advisors, best place to find us. And we actually put a ton of content out. We've got a content hub. So feel free to sign up for that. We're usually putting something out a couple times a week and it'll be more if there's big kind of macro events happening. But that's the website. Meb, really, thank you for having me. Uh, this is this has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, listeners, we'll put the links in the show notes. And uh, JD, it's been a blast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Podcast listeners, we'll post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at the mebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.